0: Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Hey guys, welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today it's just me and I'm feeling quite reflective. It's one year since I started the podcast. Can you believe that? It just blows my mind. I know when I first started, I thought, what am I going to talk about? <laughs> but what's been amazing is just hearing for, from so many people who have told me that this podcast has helped them. And that keeps me going. All the emails I get from people with podcast topic suggestions or guest suggestions just is you know, so helpful because that helps me to de- deliver a podcast for you. And I'm blown away by the fact that over 200,000 people have listened to this podcast. You know, this condition that we have called SIBO that is still relatively unknown really makes me excited that, you know, over 200,000 people are benefiting from me sharing information about our condition. Today, Because I'm feeling really reflective and really thinking back over the last 12 months of, you know, me starting this podcast, where I've come in my own personal journey and what I've achieved in my life with my health since then um, makes me pause and think about where I have come from. And in particular, I want to talk about the role that trauma has played in my life, and I know it has played a role in so many of your lives as well, because you've shared with me some incredible and very emotional stories of things that have happened to you. And I hope that in by being really honest with you today and sharing my story, warts and all, that I am able to continue to help you through your journey and listen to my story as it as it is i'm not asking you to compare it with your story or think gosh rebecca's had it worse or better than me it's just it is what it is and i'd like you to to put the, the i guess the lens on of what has happened in your life that could be impacting your ability to heal your ability to be in better health because this particular experience or experiences that i'm going to share today were like shackles for me for so many years and and at times they still are. So here we go. Very unfortunately, I was sexually abused by a family member, my uncle. And what I now know, which Breaks my heart is the majority of sexual assaults and and abuse occur by a known person to the victim or the survivor. And I like to see myself as a survivor rather than a victim. And this man was family, he was in our life, he was in our home. My mum was a hawk. She'd nearly lost me being born two months premature. So she was probably an even more intense mother than she would have been naturally because she'd experienced that awful um, thing that so many women go through where their babies are born prematurely, way too early. It's very traumatic, very stressful for them, stressful on the baby as well. And and whilst for the majority of the time that I was in the hospital and in the humicrib, I was fine, there were some early days where things were a bit touch and go. And that was very stressful for mum. It was also very stressful um, for my father. My mum was also very, very sick in recovering from giving birth to me. And so she was very cautious of what she did and didn't allow my sister and I to do and who we were allowed to spend time with and who we weren't. And so the fact that this abuse occurred right under her nose in her own house by um, a family member uh, just you know, beggars belief and sadly it's all too common. I believe the abuse started when I was about five, but I'm not exactly sure. And why I'm not sure is that I actually didn't know that this had happened um, until I hit my teens. So my uncle had been in my life uh, when I was younger, and then had been away for a period of time, and then came back into my life in my early teens, and. I'm sure as a way to notify myself as my, as my um, brain's way of going, you know, danger, danger, all of a sudden I started having these absolutely horrific flashbacks, these memories that I actually couldn't believe were true. I thought I was going insane because I thought what demented person must I be to be thinking up these things of my uncle you know, what's wrong with me? What is wrong with my brain? It's disgusting. Why are you thinking these things? And for many months, I thought that I was going insane. I was studying a book at school, um, which I was fascinated on. And it was a book called Tell Me I'm Here. And it's the story of a woman's son who de- developed schizophrenia. And I was, you know, somewhat scared that that was me because I was having these awful awful flashbacks these memories and you know I just thought you know (laughs) surely this can't be real and what made me realize that actually no this man was a extreme dangerous uh, extreme danger to me and these memories that I had were real was when he tried to do it again when I was in my teens Luckily he didn't get very far that time but the simple act that he had isolated me, that he was um, trying to sexually – well, he did sexually abuse me. It was just a more milder version of sexual abuse than what he had done previously. And there I was as a, as a young teen uh, feeling exactly the same way that I had felt as a young girl and, and then realised with horror that – what those awful memories were that I had were real. They weren't imagined. It wasn't a case of schizophrenia. It was the fact that my uncle had systematically sexually abused me for many years of my life. That kind of awareness and reality causes enormous disbelief in oneself, not to mention the absolute loathing and hatred and disgust you feel because only a disgusting person is someone that would have an adult male attracted to them. And then I thought, well, I must have done something to ask for him to do that. Maybe I somehow led him on. Maybe maybe when I was a young girl and we were playing games that You know, perhaps he had seen my underwear and it was my fault that he had then gone on to abuse me. You know, you start to really blame yourself. And I just internalised all of that emotion. I became very depressed. I had extreme bouts of depression to the point of suicide. I used to think about, well, how could I kill myself I didn't want to do anything too painful because <laughs> I have a really low threshold for pain in most areas other than my gut area where I've had a lot of pain and I think I've got quite a high tolerance to pain there but I used to think well I when I kill myself I don't want it to be too painful because you know I just want to go to sleep and I used to think well how can I just go to sleep that will be that will be a nice way to die and then I'd do some Um, reading as much as you could back in the day before the internet and you know then I'd read oh well you could have organ failure and then I'd think well no that will be painful I don't want organ failure if I'm going to try and kill myself I want to do it properly and I didn't want to hang myself because I felt that that might be too painful and so I was stuck in this loop of planning suicide but yet not knowing how to do it and then thinking, well, you're such a failure. You're such an awful person. You can't even plan your own suicide properly. You know, no wonder you were abused because you are just an absolute reject in life. Along with the time that I was very suicidal, I also started, um, I developed my eating disorder. I was bulimic. So I would go into the kitchen. I would Gorge on food and I would gorge on really sort of sugary, high carbohydrate snacks. Now, we didn't have a lot of those in the house, but we did have some. So, I might go and eat, you know, 10 slices of toast with honey on it. And I, or I'd go and, you know, for a period of time, we had bags of crisps uh, for our lunches. So, I'd go and eat the entire giant bag of all of the miniature bags or I would find some kind of lolly or candy in the house and eat that. And I'd eat it in front of the TV, kind of just mindlessly shoveling it into my face, drinking water as I went, because I knew that the next step would be that I'd go and vomit it up. Now, my mum had started to suspect that I was doing this, not surprisingly, given that there must have been so much food disappearing in one go, that she must have thought, you know, what's going on here? And so I became aware that she was trying to catch me in the act. So I used to put myself in the shower so that I could vomit in the shower and the the sound of the shower would drown out the noise. And I would repeat this process every single afternoon when I got home from school, this you know, absolute hatred of myself, gorging on food. And then as I made myself sick, I'd be telling myself, it's because you're disgusting, you're revolting. Look how disgusting you are with every purge and every vomit that I did. At the same time as having to deal with these horrific memories, I was also dealing with extreme bullying at school. I hit puberty at 11 and unfortunately I developed pretty severe acne, which I now know was totally related to the state of my gut. I didn't know that in those days and I was covered in acne all over my face, down my neck, my chest, my arms and all down my back. I've got quite a few moles on my back and for many years I had forgotten that I had moles on my back because it was so covered in big red angry acne and because I looked different and I'm sure because I really held on to a very negative emotional state I was a prime target for bullies at school I was at an all-girls school here in Melbourne Australia and you know, any sign of weakness in one of those kind of schools it makes you an immediate target. I had my head split open twice from being pushed into windows or pushed into walls. I was pushed and shoved. Um, but what really hurt me was the taunting that I got for my skin. I we used to have swimming um, every week and we'd have to shower before we got into the pool And there were communal showers, there were three showers and you'd all line up in your swimsuit to then shower and then jump in the pool. And the girls would refuse to get in the showers if I was in there because they'd say that my pimples were contagious. And then when it came to getting in the pool, they wouldn't get in the pool if I was in because they'd say that I'd contaminate the water. And so that hatred of myself was reinforced at school. When everybody around you was telling you you're disgusting how do you then tell yourself you're not when you truly believe that you are? As I got older, luckily I moved into a much nicer school and I had a period of time where there was a, you know, a small amount of reprieve where I made some friends, really normal kids that came from normal families, they were really well-adjusted and my skin didn't bother them. They didn't care less whether I had pimples or not because they were looking at me as the person rather than what I looked like on the outside. But I was rebelling. I, and again, this is a classic behavioural pattern of somebody who has been sexually abused. I went completely off the rails. I sought out highly risky experiences. I engaged in very risky behaviour which I didn't understand why I was doing it. But having worked with a psychologist, I now understand that I actually just fit the absolute profile of what happens to sexual abuse people. And so I would skip school. I'd go and hang out with pretty rough and ready kids. I hung out with this guy that was semi-homeless. He was living between family members He did not care about me at all. He just wanted to use me, use my body and treat me really badly. And again, that really reinforced that, you know, feeling of I'm nothing, I'm worthless, I'm disgusting, because I always felt disgusting at the end of one of those experiences. In my early 20s, once I'd finished my university degree, I went to the UK. I really went off and fled the country because I thought perhaps I could run away from my problems. And when I got to London, I hit the party scene really hard. I, um, you know, drugs and alcohol were very readily available. Everyone socialises in the pub. Well, everyone that I knew socialised in the pub. So you'd be drinking six or seven days a week, and I'd be drinking a bottle of wine. Sometimes I'd drink two bottles of wine, which just horrifies me now that I was able to consume that much alcohol. I can see that it was, I was really problematic um, when I look back at what I did drink. Uh, but at the time, because everybody else around me was drinking like that, that I didn't see that there was a problem to it. And then there were the drugs. There were party drugs available so cheaply, more cheap to, to take drugs than to drink. So I used to take a whole variety of drugs. I had a rule I'd never inject and I never did. (laughs) And it was all recreational drugs like ecstasy and cocaine. Drugs that made me feel good, that gave me confidence, that made me feel positive and happy and loved. And I loved people back when I was in that very elevated wasted state. But that was my life for a very long time. I was in the UK for seven years and for the majority of that that time that's how I lived on my weekends. I fell into a relationship in my early days in the UK and I fell madly in love with this English guy, you know, head over heels in love. It was the first time I had felt that, you know, just I would die for you passion and love for him. And as happens... The love faded, and two years later, we broke up. And it broke my heart. And because I had thought that I was going to marry this guy, and I just withdrew into myself. Um, you know, I look back now, and I, you know, I wish I could go back and say to him, you know, I'm really sorry, I'm a pretty messed up. Woman that has not dealt with any of the trauma from my life, and uh, you—you've <laughs> got a really tough job on your hands. As the relationship was unraveling, I started to become quite suicidal again. And he used to, you know, come home, and I'd be sitting on the couch saying, "I just want to die. There's no point living anymore. Um, I hate myself. I hate my life. I'm not disgusting. I'm so ugly. I'm so fat. You know that very negative." kind of mantra that I would just get stuck into this awful cycle. But when we broke up, I just froze. I could not bear the thought of being touched by anybody, by a man, by a woman, by a friend, by anybody. I just could not bear it. And I was in this frozen state for over three years. And it was only towards the end of my time in London that I started to defrost and I started to open my eyes again to potentials in life. Now, if you were to look at me at that time, you would never have known that that's how I was feeling other than my very, very close friends that I shared that with. But for the rest of people that were spending time with me, they would have seen probably a really happy, fun, life-loving Rebecca just seizing it by both hands and running with it. But the reality on the inside was very, very different. Along with the trauma that I experienced with the sexual abuse, I've also experienced some other pretty significant trauma. When I was still at school and at my final school, I was nearly raped. And again, given that I had this history of sexual abuse, I didn't do anything about it because I'd never done anything about it with my uncle and I you know, couldn't believe that I had found myself in this situation again with this guy who was the year beneath me at school, I was in my final year, he was the year beneath me. We were at this party at one of our friends' houses. There were a heap of kids there and he managed to isolate me, drag me into a bedroom, force me onto a bed And it was only because a friend of mine heard me screaming over the music, over all of the chatter, and he came into the room. He was half the size of this guy, and he managed to pull him off me, get me out of the room, and and I really credit him for saving me from being raped by this guy. But I didn't do anything about it because I saw that it was yet more confirmation that I was disgusting and I was worthless. I didn't deserve to be treated well because I'd never been treated well by men. Here's the funny thing. Many years later, when I returned to Australia, I discovered that a colleague was her, was his sister. Now, that was a perfect opportunity for me to say, you know what? Your brother is a disgusting cretin of a human being and this is what he did to me. But I didn't. I protected him. I still don't know why I protected him. It's such kind of that victim behavior of, you know, we must protect these awful men that do these awful things to women. But I didn't have the confidence in myself to believe that I had the power to stand up for myself, that I could make a difference. Along with that, I have had a near-fatal diving accident. I was scuba diving in the Blue Hole in Belize four years ago. I nearly lost my life. I went into a final fight or flight mode where I literally fought with every final last ounce of breath down very deep underwater before I lost consciousness. And I really feel that that diving accident was the final tipping point in my gut problems uh, to, you know, that forced my hand, it forced me to do something because when I got back to Australia, I could not ignore what was going on with my gut for a moment longer. Along with the diving accident, I've talked about being bullied at school, but I was bullied bullied in the workplace as well in almost every job that I've ever had. I'm a strong-willed woman, even though I can often be very uh, lacking in strength or confidence when it comes to reporting uh, people that have abused me, but I am opinionated, I'm an intelligent woman and whenever I had a female boss in the workplace, it was just like dynamite. And women can be incredibly cruel to one another and unfortunately I got those bosses. And I remember when I first saw the Devil Wears Prada movie and I thought, oh, my gosh. How did they know that that was my life in London? I worked in fashion and, uh, you know, it's a bitchy environment, guys, let me tell you. And I just would have these women say things like, you're so stupid, Rebecca, I don't know how you even finished school. How did you even get a degree? And I'd think, yeah, I am pretty stupid, aren't I? I'm an idiot. I'm the dumbest person you've ever seen. Now I'm not dumb. I know now I'm not dumb, but back in those days I really believed it. I would wake up in the morning and I would feel sick to the pit of my stomach at the thought of having to go into work to see that woman, that boss of mine. And I would try to make friends and I did make friends in many of the jobs that I had, Um, but I'd often hide the extent of the bullying that I had by my boss because I didn't want to burden anybody else with what was going on. And then occasionally I'd decide that, you know, it's time to stand up for myself and I'd take it to senior management and they would not believe me. And they would tell me that I was being a troublemaker or I'd be forced out of a business or I'd be asked, I'd be told that if I didn't resign, I would be fired. So again, all of this reconfirmation that I was not worthy I was not relevant in people's lives. And I then again turned that into disgust, hatred, self-loathing. As I got older, my temper became quicker and quicker and quicker. I would find myself just losing it over really minute things. When I got back to Australia, I had this moment in time where I had um, I can't remember exactly what had happened I was driving in my car and this guy had got really annoyed at me because I had got in front of him or something it was ridiculous so he starts tooting me and I wind down my window and I give him the bird because I'm like don't you toot me I'm Rebecca do you not know who I am well, he zooms around in front of me, slams on his brakes right in front of my car, leaps out and I think, oh my God, this guy's going to come and bash me up. And I'm tr- desperately trying to lock my doors and I'm thinking, why did I do that? And then he's screaming at me at the car about how he's going to kill me and he's going to bash me. And he finally got back in his car and he drove off. And I sat there and I thought, you know what, Rebecca, it's time for you to do something about your anger. It's really time for you to start addressing why you are so angry about things, things that don't matter. What I didn't realize this entire time that I was feeling all of these things, I was just contributing to the trauma of my gut that I was staying in a constant fight-or-flight state, that my body was ready to flee at a moment's notice because from day one I've had a lot of trauma with my body and all it knew was trauma and high anxiety and danger. I've been in real-life danger many, many times and so my body was used to... Being prepared to fight or to flight or to freeze. We now know that when you go into that state, that directly impacts the gut. That when you go into that fight or flight or freeze state, which I spent most of my life in, that the blood supply and the energy and the focus diverts away from the digestive system. And it goes to muscles, it goes to the lungs, it readies the body to run or to fight, to survive. But because I was going through that every single day for most of my life, my poor little digestive system really didn't stand a chance at all to survive (laughs) what it was going through. No wonder I ended up in such a bad way with my gut. then things would calm down. I am a perfectionist. I'm a control freak. I want everything to be my own way. I've really struggled for most of my life with uh, giving people control to do it their way. It's been a major issue um, in my life with relationships that I've been in because, you know, past past Partners, And even my current partner has said to me, you know, Rebecca, it doesn't have to be your way all the time. Other people can do it their way and that's still an okay way. But when everything feels like it's out of your control, you want to control the things that you can control. So I could control my food and I have been obsessive over food on and off over my life. The eating disorder was a classic example of me controlling what I did with my food. Going onto the SIBO diet was a great trigger for me to become very controlling and obsessive with my food. It's all I thought about every single day. I'm sure many people would say it's all I talked about. I became obsessed with it. I researched it. I wanted to know everything I could. I wanted to know what was right and I wanted to know what was wrong because I wanted to do it right. I didn't want to do anything wrong. I've got videos of me talking about this. I've talked about it in my cookbooks. You know, I wrote those passages two years ago and it's amazing even in that short period of time how much I've relaxed and modified my thinking around diet, that we don't have to be 100% controlled in order to recover from SIBO. I actually believe that having a little bit of flexibility is a really good thing. I have very high standards in, in what I want to achieve in life. Again it's control. I want things to be perfect and when we think about going through a health journey or a health transformation which so many of you are on at this point in time because you are going through a transformation you're, you know, it's like you're the caterpillar that's going into the cocoon and you're going to emerge a butterfly we often feel that if we can control every single aspect of it then we will get the outcome that we want well life doesn't work like that we can't control everything and all we do when we try to control everything is we set ourselves up for enormous failure And then when we fail, we tell ourselves we're stupid and that we deserve to fail. And then we slip into that really nasty cycle again. I decided a few years ago that I was finally going to do something about the abuse. I had found a new psychologist. I'd been working with her. I was finding the treatment to be very therapeutic with her. And I decided that I was going to go to the police and make a statement. Now, I suffered from that classic feeling that I, um, since doing more research around survivors of sexual assault and abuse, um, that it's very common, A, for it to take many years, decades generally, for a person to disclose what's happened to them. And secondly, the most common thing that we feel is that no one will believe us because how could they? There's no longer any evidence. It's my word against theirs. And before I went to the police, because I couldn't even imagine how to do it, I was like, what, do I just walk into a police station and go and say, um, hi, I'd like to report that I was sexually abused by my uncle from the age of five? I just couldn't fathom how this was going to happen. But I sat down with my parents and I said, it's time. I really need to do this. I really need to go to the police because I'm terrified he's done it to others, which I now know through again more research that the likelihood of him abusing others is high which devastates me and you know I wish there was a way that I could find other survivors of his assault and be there for them and that I it was time for me to um to do something about it my dad had recently been diagnosed with leukemia we hadn't told many people Um, he was getting sicker and sicker by the day and he said to me, I don't think I have the strength to, have to to be able to deal with what is going to happen by you disclosing this information. There's going to be enormous fallout amongst the family and I don't think I've got the strength for it. Can you wait a little longer, what's another few months, for my cancer treatment to ho- hopefully start working and then we will do this as a family And I said, sure, Dad, I'll wait. Not long after that, my uncle committed suicide. And that just devastated me. My whole world imploded because I no longer had the opportunity to report this man, to seek justice for what this man had done to me, for the terrible pain and suffering he has caused me and my family by abusing me as much as he did. And I called the police and I said, You know, I just need to report the fact my uncle abused me. He's just committed suicide. I don't know what to do. And they said, Un- Really, unfortunately, there isn't anything we can do. Our job is to investigate living persons, not deceased persons. And I said, Well, is there any way that we can find out who else he's abused? And they said, Unfortunately, there isn't. Um, we will we'll have this on file now so that if anybody else contacts us and reports him and uses his name, then Uh, We will have that on record and we can, um, you know, piece it together. But, you know, unfortunately, there's no longer any retribution. And for somebody that has worked so hard to be in control of everything, I lost, I felt like I had lost control. I felt like the one thing that I had said, you know, one day I'll do this, had been taken away from me without my control once again. I fell into an absolute heap. My body collapsed. I spent several days just unable to get out of bed, sobbing uncontrollably for hours and hours and hours on end. My gut was in absolute disarray. And it was about the time that I was starting to do my um, SIBO treatment as well. And it was just, you know, such an awful moment in life because nothing that I had worked for felt like it mattered anymore. As I'm lying there, my I mean, I was crippled in emotional pain but also physical pain, my gut pain. My gut felt like I had knives twisting and turning inside of it and I realised that nobody was going to be able to help me with my life except for myself. I had been searching for people to help me on everything, on what was happening with my gut, why I couldn't lose weight, on my emotional state, you know, I really leaned on my friends enormously for emotional support and all things in life. And as I came out of that very dark period, I realized that I had to take control of my life once and for all, but not in an obsessive way, in a way that was more healthy, in a way that allowed for life's ups and downs and that I could accept them, acknowledge them and still move on I found my amazing naturopath. I've talked about building my dream team in previous episodes and if you'd like to hear more about that, go back to episode one, my very first podcast episode a year ago where I talk about my journey to recovering my health. And I did something that I'd never done before. I just let go a little bit. I really credit the psychologist that I saw for helping me with that. We did a lot of work around my um you know, these memories that I had held on to, you know, these awful, terrifying, excruciatingly painful memories that sat within me and that were bubbling to the surface without, you know, notice sometimes and that, you know, they could just sideswipe me and, and leave me in an absolute state. And I realised that as I dealt with all of this trauma, the sexual abuse, the bullying at school, the bullying in the workplace, my near-death experience. Every time I, f- I thought about those experiences, my poor little gut would literally turn in knots. And I could see that I was inadvertently keeping myself sick by not dealing with these emotions, by just you know thinking, I'll oh, just lock them away. If I don't think about them, they won't be there. Well, they are there. They're in our subconscious and they're bubbling away under the surface. And, you know, I feel like they were like little piranha fish. They were just gnawing away, gnawing away, gnawing away. And they'd left this massive hole in my gut that I then had to go and repair. Piece by piece, I have patched up that hole, both in my gut, my heart and my mind. And today I acknowledge that my journey to health is this long continuum got bends, it's got peaks, it's got valleys. It's not a smooth straight road that I once thought it was. I no longer see that I have to go from point A to point B in a straight linear line but instead I'm going to be curving round the mountains and going soaring to the the highest highs and I will also go to the lowest lows and that is okay. I've worked at identifying the triggers for my health, both my emotional health and my physical health. We talk a lot about our physical health, but so much of what we're going through is emotional. And because we can't see it, we often don't give it the credit that it requires. But then also having a condition like SIBO or having another digestive issue that again, for the most part is hidden because it's within us and it's also not well-known, although that's changing, makes it difficult for others to appreciate or acknowledge what we're going through. I look at what I can do in my life to take me one step closer to a life that I want to live. I focus on that and I don't focus on what's happened to me in my past. I read a, a really wonderful book by um, an amazing Australian author and human being, a guy called Andrew Griffiths. And he's a business author, but he wrote a book called The Me Myth and he had a pretty challenging start to life and he, it's a bit of an autobiographical book. And he was left by his parents, just abandoned. And he talks in his book about how can you thank your past experiences. And I can look at, uh, I, I found that passage really difficult because I thought, well, how on earth am I ever going to thank my uncle for sexually abusing me? How can you thank a person like that? It's the most disgusting, heinous act. Yet I could thank the girls at school for bullying me because I could see that it had given me strength and resilience that I may not have if it hadn't have been for that and i could thank the bosses that had bullied me because that too gave me strength and resilience that i now have that other people don't necessarily have and that i may not have had and these days it's taken me some it's taken me you know, about 2 years since reading that passage in that book to really you know just slowly think about how can i thank you know i don't know that i will ever thank my uncle but be thankful for the situations that i've experienced and today I realized that without them I wouldn't be doing what I am today I wouldn't be talking to you on my podcast I wouldn't be helping the thousands of people around the world through their experiences if I had had an average normal life And whenever I share this story and, and you know, guys I've got to be honest it's really emotional for me talking about this you know I've been on the verge of tears a few times as I share this with you because it really does you know this is power this is really powerful stuff for me. it's It's the deep sort of soul of who I am. It, it, you know I'm talking about some very significant things that have shaped me to who I am today at you know, a nearly forty year old Rebecca. But without the sum of all of my parts, I wouldn't be here today. and I am really thankful for that. And today I see myself as a strong, intelligent woman. I'm powerful in myself. I don't hate myself like I once did. I love myself. When I look in the mirror now, I don't see the flaws, but I see the incredible strength that I have. I don't say, oh gosh, I've got such fat legs, but I say I've got powerful legs that are able to hold my body upright and allow me to walk. And now I've got my gorgeous little puppy and I can walk with him every single day. And I'm so grateful for that because other, you know I may not have legs and I may not be able to walk. and I'm really, really glad, you know proud of the strength that my legs have. I'm proud of the strength that my body has. My body is resilient, it's powerful, it's healing, it's responding to me. It's listening to me. It's amazing what we can actually do when we start leaning back into ourselves and stop leaning out and running away from it. But I also acknowledge that I'm not perfect and that's okay. I don't have to be perfect and nor should I be because life isn't perfect. There is no perfect continuum of life that exists out there. Look at Mother Nature and she will show you that Mother Nature is not perfect. We have good times and we have bad times. And I still have days where, you know, I can get gripped with the emotional baggage of what's happened in my past. I had somebody make a comment to me in recent times that, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? You're not a doctor. You shouldn't be out there talking to people with SIBO. And that really affected me. It really upset me. It really bothered me. And it had the potential to spend, send me spiraling into a very negative well of self-pity and self-doubt and all the rest and so what I have now is I have these kind of techniques and strategies as ways of identifying when there's a potential trigger and what I do about it. Now, for a long time, that was um, I'd go and see my psychologist, and we'd talk through what had happened and how, why I was feeling the way I was feeling, and what I could do to change those feelings. And recognizing that that was that person's problem, not my per- my problem. And in order, when somebody's attacking you, it's generally because you're hitting a nerve with them, and they don't like it. <laughs> it's more a reflection of their problem than your problem. And so now I know that there are certain triggers, there are certain people that I know are likely to trigger me. I have family members that I try not to spend too much time with because I know that they're a trigger. Uh, Their behaviour, their attitudes can set me off on a um, downward spiral. There are people in my life that were also um, capable of doing that. And when it comes to food, having been so obsessive with my food And, you know, I definitely can be quite controlled with my food. I now acknowledge that every now and then it's quite acceptable for me to bend the rules. And that's okay. I'm not going to get SIBO back because I bent the rules and I had a piece of sourdough bread from a bakery around the corner, which I adore with fresh butter on it. It's the most amazing thing ever. One slice of sourdough bread with butter is not going to put me back at the beginning of my journey. Now, the old me would have thought it would. The new me recognises, or the new and improved, or the modified, or evolved, whatever we want to say, me recognises that that's not the case. I no longer rely on other people to solve my problems. I am an amazing problem solver. I've demonstrated that to myself in the last two years, two and a half years since the SIBO diagnosis, since really it felt like my entire world changed. Everything in my world changed around the time I found out I had SIBO. It was incredibly painful and traumatic and emotional and stressful at the time, but my gosh. I'm so glad that that happened to me because I'm such a better person for it. I'm in such a better place with my health for it, and I really thank the universe for delivering all of those things all at that one time, so that I was, you know, I was obviously ready for the change and transformation. But guys, these days I'm the one calling the shots. I'm calling the shots around my health. I'm calling the shots around, you know, who I support myself with, who's qualified from a medical perspective. I call the shots on who I spend my time with. I want to invest in myself to be the best version of myself I can be. And the people that are around me, I want them to be doing the same. And if they're not, I'm sorry, but I'm not going to spend that much time with you. I might see you every now and then, but I am not going to be hanging out with you if all you're doing is dwelling on negatives, activities of self-sabotaging. You know, I have no interest in that. Because I'm finally, for the first time in my life, at nearly the age of 40, in a really good place. And, you know, I'm in control, but I'm not controlling. So trauma has a really profound impact on our lives and our bodies. And if you've had trauma or experienced traumatic events, and, you know, it, I don't want it to be a comparison, like I said at the beginning. I don't want you to be thinking, oh, well, I was never sexually abused like Rebecca was but, you know, I had a boss who was pretty nasty to me once or, you know, I was in this relationship that wasn't great but he never hit me. I don't want you to to compare, you know, on a scale of one to ten how bad it was. If you've experienced trauma either physically or emotionally, that is enough to have an impact on your gut and your microbiome and, you know, your overall health. So look at what that trauma has been for you. Do you still experience that trauma today? Does that replay in your mind? And if it does, what can you do about it? Maybe seeking the services of a psychologist could be really beneficial to you. Maybe working with someone like myself who's a coach who can uh, share strategies around uh, coping and, and um, you know, tactics and those types of things around how to put one foot in front of the other might be helpful. Maybe it's calling up your best friend and saying I really need to go and have a cup of tea or a coffee or a glass of sparkling water or a glass of wine or vodka whatever it is that you would like to do and I just need I just need to talk or I just need a hug or going and playing with your little cute puppy like I have and uh, and just having a moment of joy. Look at what you need to do to support yourself and remember that it's your life. You're in control in a nice way, not a controlling, crazy way like where I've come from. So take back the ownership and the control of your health and leave the past in the past. Don't let it shape your future. Look towards where you're going and stop looking in the rear vision mirror at where you've come from. I hope my story has um, helped... uh, or done something, um, you know, it's pretty big sharing it. I've never just sat down and shared the entire thing with you guys. Uh, I've talked a bit about it over various podcast episodes, but I've never really gone through it like that. I'd love to hear what you think, guys. You know, it's it's pretty big for me to share that. Um, how has, has my share, story and sharing it resonated with you? Drop me an email. Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from you. It's Rebecca at thehealthygut.co. I hope the last year of podcast episodes have been enjoyable. I've thoroughly enjoyed bringing them to you. I really look forward to bringing the next year of podcast episodes to you. And like I've said before, if there are episodes or topics that you would like me to cover, tell me. This podcast is for you. Now I do have one little request, guys, and uh you know this is my honesty <laughs> podcast honesty one oh one I have done this podcast out of the out of my passion to help, and you know sometimes my desire to help uh, can be my shortcoming because I will do everything in my power to help people, and my accountant tells me that sometimes <laughs> I need to not be you know doing everything in my power uh financially to help so here's the here's the deal. I have fully funded this podcast. I've put all of my savings into it. Now I've had some really gorgeous people contact me over the year saying, you know, how can I help? And one woman recently asked, well, I don't understand, you know, what are the expenses? Can you tell me what are the, some of the expenses so I can have an understanding of, you know, what I could contribute? And I thought that was a really great question. So every month it costs me about 200 Australian dollars to air a podcast. That includes hosting it. That includes having my editor um, piece it all together. So it sounds good so you guys aren't going, ah, what's Rebecca done with her audio? (laughs) And that also includes creating the graphics, which you've got to create so that you can promote it. So you can put it on a website and send a Facebook post out and all of that stuff. So when you think about what that has cost over the course of a year—that is quite a lot of money—and that's just—it's uh, about two and a half thousand Australian dollars. That's just come out of my pocket, and I don't know how much longer I'll be able to continue doing it if I don't get some support. So here's the thing: we've got two over two hundred thousand people listen to this podcast. If every person contributed one dollar to the podcast, we would be able to have this podcast go for years (laughs) and I'd probably be able to do more episodes more frequently. And that would make an enormous difference to me being able to put that out to you every single week, week in, week out. I would love it if you could contribute even just a single dollar to the podcast. It helps everything that comes in goes to the running expenses And it means that I get to to keep a podcast going for you to help you learn more about your condition. It is the number one podcast in the world on SIBO for SIBO patients. And I'd hate to see it disappear because I ran out of money. (laughs) If you head to my website, thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast, there's a button there that allows you to make a contribution to the podcast and I would absolutely love it if you could do that. And if you'd like to get the show notes from today's episode, you can find them at the forward slash trauma. And like I have said before, and I'll say it again, I really do love connecting with you on the various social media platforms that I use. So come say hi on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Pinterest and Google+. We're everywhere. Uh, just look for us under The Healthy Gut. I hope you've enjoyed today's podcast. Like I said, Tell me what you think, guys. It really means the world to me every time I receive an email or a message from somebody from around the world. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about The Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. And as we are fully funding this podcast, if you would like to help support the continuation of this podcast so that we can continue to bring you future episodes, all you need to do is make a contribution at thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Belinda Coombs for the production, editing and original music score of this podcast. To hear more of Belinda's music, head to soundcloud.com forward slash Belinda Coombs. The Healthy Gut podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip?